the Buddha said a number of times that the microphone wasn't on when he was speaking to <laughs> large groups of people. The Buddha said many times that his teaching was all about suffering and coming to the end of suffering. Tonight's talk may seem a little bit technical and a little bit philosophical at times, but I hope you'll hang with me because the intent of it is really to talk about suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha traced our suffering to a lack of understanding. He said that ignorance is the foundation of the way we misperceive the world and ourselves, and because of that, suffering comes into being. And he put this rather in a rather pith way. Uh, at one point, he said, in whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that. <laughs> or as one of my teachers said even more pithily, everything you think is wrong. <laughs> so we want to explore tonight some of the misconceptions that, um, that we hold and see how we might understand them differently. And as a preface to the talk, I, I want to quote something else from the Buddha when he was talking about his awakening. He said, This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand, subtle to be experienced by the wise. The talk tonight may not be profound or subtle, but it may be hard to understand. (laughs) So I invite you to kind of let the words in, see what resonates, and let them go. Try not to argue too much during the talk. and You can argue with me tomorrow. Generally, when we look at ourselves or each other, we see a person. But the Buddha said that one uh, shouldn't really see in this way. The Vasudhimaga said that looking at somebody and seeing a person is not very refined that one who has closely investigated the mind-body process wouldn't see in this way. They said it's like a skilled butcher who's cutting up the carcass of a cow and going, cow, cow, cow. A skilled butcher wouldn't do that. The skilled butcher would go rump, tenderloin, sirloin, ribs, because they have so much familiarity with the detail of their work. So... The Buddha said, we should bring that kind of detail to our own knowing of what constitutes a person. There are a few ways that the Buddha described a person. One is the uh, description that uh, I talked about on the opening night, which we've referred to a number of times, of the six senses and the objects arising of the six sense type. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and objects of mind. He used that very frequently. But there's another model that comes in, uh, referenced in the suttas and then explored also in the Abhidhamma, that um, I want to use mostly as the basis for this investigation tonight. And we'll follow the kind of Abhidhamma model here. This is a part of of the ancient scriptures in Buddhism that dates back to about 200 years after the death of the Buddha. And in the Abhidhamma, a person is described as being composed of three components, And these components are physical form, consciousness, which we've talked about quite a bit, and mental phenomena. Let's call them mental formations. So I want to talk about each of these three and see if you can get a feeling for what is being pointed to here that is our makeup. The first is material form. But when material form is pointed to, It doesn't just stop at this body. It includes the whole physical world. So you could say that what we're really investigating is the domain of our experience. Our experience includes the physical body, but it also includes our experience of the rest of the physical world. So this first component of form includes all of that. So it is the physical body, but it is also everything external everything that we consider in the world of physical matter is included within this first component of form. So it includes the five physical senses, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, 
touches, as well as the body, which is the base of all those. We, I think we take it for granted that we know what the body is, but if we stop and ask, do we really? Have you ever been surprised on a retreat at what the body was as you examined it closely? You know, mostly all we know of the body is primarily through two senses. We see it and we feel it. You know, we also sometimes smell it and taste it and hear it. Those usually don't tend to be too pleasant, so we don't spend too much time on those. But we see the body and we feel the body. So our information about the body comes through those senses already, conditioned by those senses. When you hear that sound, that is one example of form. I'll come back to that in a couple of more places. This is in the component part of our experience that's considered physical matter or form. So I'd like to read from a discourse of the Buddhas that talks about his view of form, and it's maybe a little different than we might be prepared for. This is a sutta called A Mass of Foam. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the river Ganges. The Blessed One is another name for the Buddha. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, the practitioners, the monks, thus. Monks, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great mass of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mass of foam? So too, monks, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future, or present, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form. This is a little radical, isn't it? What substance could there be in the physical world? It's kind of a big question. We'll come back to this a little later. The second of these components that make us up, we could call mental formations. And we talk about these primarily as uh, thoughts and feelings the sort of constructed events that flow through the mind. So the activity of thought, which we're all very familiar with at this point, the different kinds of moods and feelings that come up in the mind. So it could be the, hindrance, the hindrances that Joseph started talking about the other night of doubt or anger, uh, desire, dullness, restlessness, could be the beautiful qualities of the Brahma-viharas, of love, compassion, or joy. This area of uh, mental phenomena also includes sort of refined meditative states. So the presence in the mind of concentration, or mindfulness, or equanimity, or calm. These are also included in this component of mental formations. So, for instance, if we're in a sitting in the hall and we hear the sound of the bell, it usually means the sitting is over. So, I don't know about you, but often when I hear that sound, I get a new sense of ease throughout my body. (laughs) Oh, it feels so good to sit. And then I think, you know, I could sit forever now. So, on hearing the sound then this mood arises of ease, a mental formation, and the thought comes, I could sit forever. So those are both in the field of mental formations, the objects of mind. The third component that we put in this list is the factor of consciousness. We've talked about this quite a bit, awareness or consciousness or knowing. We've been using them largely synonymously so far this retreat. So it's that capacity of mind that receives all the sense experience and that knows it in this bare, pre-verbal way that makes it a part of our experience, a part of our sense data. So 
when the sound arises, it's known immediately. There's not a gap. It doesn't take any effort. The way that it's understood in uh, the Buddhist teachings is that the sound and the knowing of it actually come up together as one unitary event. So don't, don't, don't think of it as two different things happening. See what happens if you think of it as one event that has these two aspects. One is the form aspect of the sound and the other is the mental aspect of the knowing or consciousness. A, uni- a unitary experience of mind and form combined. And we can look at either aspect. So that may seem a little puzzling, one experience with two aspects. But I'd ask you to look at the base of the bowl and ask, uh, is it round or is it black? It's really one object, but it has two aspects, doesn't it? So I'd like to just ask you to consider investigating your experience, for example, of hearing in the same way. A sound arising and being known is one event, and we can tune in either to the sound or we can tune into the knowing or the consciousness of it. So, of course, consciousness is here all along the way. There's consciousness of the bell. There's consciousness of the sense of ease. There's consciousness of the thought, I could sit forever. All of these are held in this factor of consciousness. Why is this worth investigating? Why is it worth looking in this way? I want to suggest that this way of looking can be very liberating. And personally, I found this investigation a part of my practice that has brought a lot of freedom over the years. I started to investigate in this way when um, my older sister died, a sister who's five years older than I am, and died when she was 52, quite young, quite unexpectedly, and I was thrown by her death because I had talked to her a few days before. She was robust. She was vital. She was an interesting and fun person. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, she was simply gone. And I couldn't understand how that happened. So it, it threw me into an investigation. I wanted to understand what constitutes this mind-body process and what happens when somebody goes from living to dying. And I'll suggest that investigating these three aspects of our being gives us a very good way to understand uh, what that process is. What came clear to me as I carried on this investigation is that there's an element that we commonly think of as being part of a person that is not in form, is not in mental formations, and is not in consciousness. And that is the I, the self. What we think of as a self is just kind of a unconscious lumping together of all three of these aspects. But when we tease them apart, we'll find that there's no center within that collection that is an abiding or ongoing entity at the center that receives it all, that experiences it all, that is the essence of this collection. There is only form, formations, and consciousness. There's nothing else. There's no self hidden in here. This itself is freeing. This is one of the very freeing insights along the path of discovery of meditation. We'll come back to this in in a minute. But one of the ways I want to suggest this understanding comes through of the lack of self-essence is by investigating each of these three components as an aspect of nature. So we take the physical body, which is a substitute for all the form. Take a look at this physical body and think about its origin. It came about because your father's sperm met with your mother's egg came together in conception, and the cells started to multiply, 
that body then was grown in the womb, emerged from the womb, was nourished by milk and food and water and air, and grew up in a purely physical process over these 20, 30, 40, or however many years. So it's always been a natural physical occurrence from its very beginning. One of my teachers in Thailand, a great monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa, put it this way. He said, this body came out of nature, it never departed from nature, and it still belongs to nature. So give it back to nature. That'll be a big relief for you. Can you get the flavor of that? We spend so much time cherishing this and trying to own it, and yet did you have anything to do with its appearance that you can recall? The eye that takes possession of this body today had nothing to do with its arising, nothing to do with its growth, nothing to do with its shape and form and color of hair and eyes and all of that. Just physical nature created this. Similarly, if you look at the range of mental formations that constitutes what we usually call personality, you know somebody as being a kind person or a generous person or a an unkind person or a thoughtful person. These are based on the the moods and feelings and intentions that go through the heart and mind. And when you think about all these different components, sure, our particular mixture is different, but everybody has kindness. Everybody has some generosity. Everybody has some cruelty, some anger, some joy, some sadness. We take possession of these emotions also and identify my anger, my happiness. But when we step back just a minute, we see, oh, it's just a human emotion. All humans share this emotion. It's part of our makeup. It's part of the makeup of every one of us. It's part of the human package. So we start to see that this is part of mental nature, or you could say emotional nature that we carry just by virtue of the fact of being human. Again, we didn't create it, we didn't cause it, we didn't bring it into being, but we inherit this package as part of our humanness, and each of us does. So again, just human nature. And then we come to the third part, this knowing quality, and there the individuality really goes away. Because when you hear the sound of the bell, don't you imagine that your knowing of that is just like my knowing of that, is just like Meotian's knowing of that? Our knowing doesn't have any individuality at all. There's nothing of guyness about that. There's nothing of patriciness about the knowing. Again, it's just consciousness an aspect of the nature of mind. Aspect of human nature, but nothing more than that, something that we all share. So in all this bundle, the body, manifestation just of physical nature, the moods, emotions, and thoughts, manifestation of mental nature, consciousness, manifestation of the nature of mind, there's really no individuality. There's nothing we can call a true abiding self. So then we start to see there's not so much difference between us all. Our bodies are so similar, the range of our emotions, the same, our capacity for knowing, identical. Fundamentally, it's like we're one being that's just been poured into these different vessels, different shaped vessels, and then conditioned in different ways. So seeing as it all is nature takes out some of that identification, some of that grip of the I. This letting go of the sense of I is an aspect of what's called emptiness. In the Buddha's uh, teachings, he used empty most of the time synonymously with this understanding that there's not... Um, 
an ongoing abiding entity at the center of this mind-body process, the teachings on the absence of self, even though it sure looks that way sometimes. He compared this all to a magic show. Suppose, monks, that a magician should hold a magic show at a crossroads, and a keen-sighted person should inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. It would appear to that person to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What substance, monks, could there be in a magic show? This is a continuation of the sutta that we began with this evening. So it's as though we have all been taken in by the magic show of form, formations, and consciousness, believing that there's an existing self somewhere in there when there isn't actually. What happens when you've seen a magic show and you've been really wowed by it and then the person tells you how they did the trick? Does it take away some of the glamour? takes away the wow factor, doesn't it? In Buddhism, this movement from being taken in by the magic show to understanding it and losing that wow factor, the dazzle factor, is called disenchantment, nibbida. And in the Buddha's teachings, it is a key component for leading us to quit grasping onto the passing show that is this world. When we understand the way it's put together and we see the mechanism of it, we don't hold on quite so tightly. So the Buddha continues, Even so, monks, whatever form, formations, consciousness there is, a person inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. It would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What substance, monks, could there be in form, formations, consciousness. And then he ends with a little verse. Form is like a mass of foam, and formations a banana tree. I didn't understand that at first. If you've lived in the tropics, you probably know a banana tree uh, bears once, and then the whole tree dies because it doesn't have a solid core. There's no solidity at the core of a banana tree. It's gone. Formations are like a banana tree, and consciousness is a magic show, a juggler's trick entire. All these similes were made known by the kinsman of the sun, another word for the Buddha. So one meaning of emptiness is the absence of an abiding self within this process of form, formations, and consciousness. But this sutta is also pointing to another meaning of emptiness, which is something like insubstantiality, even of the physical world. See the world as a mass of foam. How can that be? This is very counter to our culture's assumptions. We live in a very materialistic culture, dominated by a firm belief in the solidity and the primacy of physical reality. Not all cultures see this way, but our culture does. So growing up in a Western culture, we come up with the idea that this physical world is the ultimate truth of things. And the ultimate truth is that it has existed for a very long time. We're born into it. And as a result of being born into it, a consciousness develops out of the physical makeup of the body and contacts the physical world. And when we die, we go away and the physical world continues. This is the sort of primary assumption of Western culture. But other cultures have had different understandings of what constitutes the ultimate reality. There are schools of Indian philosophy that deny that and take the opposite view. They say, no, 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 no. Physical reality is just a bubble arising in consciousness. Consciousness is the ultimate reality. Mind is the ultimate reality. It has existed since beginningless time, and the physical worlds just come and go. World systems play within this vast space of mind or consciousness. In those cultures, this is a more valid view. Personally, I find this view a little more entertaining. 
But the early teachings of the Buddha, of the Pali Canon, take kind of a middle way between these two. And he describes consciousness and physicality as mutually dependent. He gives ultimacy to neither one, but says that they lean against each other like two sheaves of reeds. And if you take one away, the other collapses. That's a very interesting thought. Not that body caused consciousness, but that they both depend upon each other. And that is a shift from the Western materialist worldview. Patricia began to talk last night about some of the, what I would say are some of the implications of this. When she talked about coming out of our concepts about reality and coming into direct contact with reality and touching the truth of our direct experience. And we start to see the, the insubstantial nature of experience as we get closer and closer to it. So we start, and with sounds, you know, we soon tune into how ephemeral every sound is. Even the big trucks that roll by, you know, pass in a matter of seconds. Smells, as we go into the dining room, very elusive. Taste, flower, and then pass away. Thoughts, so fleeting. One thought comes, and in a couple of seconds, it's gone. And emotions are so tentative and vague, it's hard to stay connected for long. Just coming and coloring things like a cloud does, very hard to take a hold of. Then we start to explore the body, and I think this is what Patricia mentioned last night. We assume the body is entirely solid, I think, when we come into practice. Most of us do. I did. As we experience it directly for ourselves, we start to to notice as we get close to it, there's nothing solid there at all. Everywhere we turn our attention, there's only change, pulsation, vibration, flickering, arising, changing, passing, on and off. And we start to feel with our direct experience of the body that it's just an energy field. It's a flow of changing sensations, none of which last for very long in any kind of solid way. So we start to feel this insubstantial or fluid nature of the body. But of all the senses, for me, sight has always been the hardest to get any sense of insubstantiality from. We look around a room like this, nothing seems to change. The floor looks really solid. The walls look really solid. The windows, the doors, and so forth. How can we look at sight in a way that we can see that it too might be like a mass of foam? So indulge me a little bit in some seventh grade science reflection. We turn our um, reflection to how this sight has arisen. And we see, we understand from simple science that it arises because light particles, photons, have reflected off the elements of the room, traveled to our eyes, impinging on the retina, and that light activity stimulates the retina to send a signal, signal up the optic nerve, which travels into the brain and stimulates parts of the brain. And out of that stimulation, somehow, really mysteriously, the scientists haven't figured this one out yet, visual consciousness arises. That last step is so mysterious. But we know that all the earlier steps are necessary. So think about the implications of that. What would happen to this solid site if somebody threw the light switch and all the light went off. Oh, sight goes away. Maybe that sight is not so solid. And then we reflect, this sight isn't really solid, but it's being regenerated maybe dozens of times, hundreds of times a second by the influx of new photons. You know, there must be hundreds of thousands, millions of photons stimulating the retina in every second, sending a new signal up to the brain and the brain is regenerating the picture 
over and over many times a second. And without that regeneration, sight would end. So what we thought was the real world, when we stop to reflect for just a minute, we see we don't really know what that real world is. Because what we're living with is a representation of that so-called real world that's constructed by our brain based on data from our senses, ever-changing, and interpreted through our human consciousness. So, you know, we don't actually live in a real solid world. We live in a flickering representation of the world generated by our senses and our neural activity. That's all there is. We can't know anything else. This which feels so solid is only another sensation that comes through our fingertips or our seat. The floor feels like one of the most solid things. And I think we take it as kind of our ground. Oh, there's ground somewhere. I can put my faith there. I can rest there. We investigate that sensation, and it is also only the sensation of hardness that's known through the sense of touch. And when you pay close attention to your sitting bones or your fingertips, you start to feel the change in pulsation and vibration in that sensation also. And you realize there may be a ground physically, but that physical ground is also just an appearance in consciousness, flickering on and off through our senses, and there's no ground to consciousness. Consciousness doesn't have ground. Consciousness is just a bubble that has nothing underneath it. We also know that's true when we remember the image of the earth in space. There's nothing holding up this earth. And there's nothing holding up our consciousness. So when we get to this level of seeing, we're into the area of the emptiness of objects. And then we really understand how the Buddha could say that this physical world is just a mass of foam. It's only a flickering appearance in consciousness, and it has no ground. This is one of the senses of emptiness. This also came home to me strongly when I was a monk in Thailand. As a monk, I had the great, great privilege of being able to see autopsies. This is a treat for a Buddhist. So a friend and I went one day down to the coroner's office in a hospital in downtown Bangkok. We walked in uh, to the room adjacent to the autopsy theater, and there was a young body on the, the metal table there, body of a young woman who had drowned in one of the canals. She was going to be the first um, autopsy of the day. I was 34 years old, and I had never been next to a dead person before. And now I was standing inches away from a stranger who had died, and I was about to see the autopsy performed. So they wheeled her into the theater, and the coroner began to uh, conduct the autopsy, which you may or may not know involves taking out most of the bodily organs, weighing them, beginning with the brain. So the first step was that this woman's brain was removed and weighed. Then her chest was opened, and the other internal organs were taken out, examined, and weighed. And then they were put back, and she was sewn up. And the process took about, as I recall, about 30 minutes. And as we sat there in the theater... Uh, Then after one autopsy was done, I think two others were performed, and I was able to watch both of those. I'd been doing quite a lot of sitting in in the monastery before coming into the hospital, and I was in a pretty open and, and sensitive place, and it was a very powerful experience for me. Finished the autopsies, and I walked back out into downtown Bangkok, into this big parade ground where I was going to catch my bus 
to go back to the monastery. And I walked out in the parade ground. It was a very sunny day, and there were all kinds of people walking around through the parade ground. There was a mother watching her children who were playing in the, on the grass. There's an old woman wheeling a shopping cart full of groceries from the market nearby. A young couple walked by holding hands, you know, really happy in each other's company. And I just watched them all, and I saw them in a really different way. And as I was going home on the bus, I thought, what's different about this way? And I thought, I'm seeing walking corpses. Everywhere I looked, I was seeing walking corpses. And I thought, well, what do I mean by that? And what had struck me is that the bodies I was watching were exactly like those bodies I'd seen on the coroner's table. But these were different in one respect. They were animated by this kind of light that shone out through the eyes. This light that uh, suggested to me this faculty of consciousness that we have when we're alive. And as I watched these people walking, you know, I saw how I myself had not understood that consciousness very well at different times. Because that light that was shining out through their eyes was completely of this present moment. Didn't have any past and it didn't have any future. But because of the capacity for memory, we are able to construct a past based on memory, an imagined past, a fabricated past, and to project it into the future to create an imaginary future and thereby weave ourselves into the web of time, into the bondage of time when we don't see clearly how we're constructing it. But I saw in that moment that these walking corpses were completely free. That brightness, that illumination was completely free of past and future. And it was very moving to me because I saw how all of us wanted to secure our lives and our well-being in the midst of this foam of the material world, this foam of life, where all we have is the body and this brightness. And you can see how impossible it is to secure anything in that situation. The Buddha said that all our attempts to secure are like a person who's caught in a river and being carried downstream by a strong current. And all along the bank, there are these lumps of grass. And as the person goes by, they hang on to a lump of grass looking for stability, but every one comes off in their hands. And they're carried on down the river. This is our attempt to cling to what's ultimately passing and transitory. So then how do we find any kind of refuge, any kind of release from this situation? The Buddha started his quest in search of this solution. He said that when he was an unenlightened bodhisattva, he saw that he himself was searching for things in this conditioned realm. said, I am subject to birth, and illness, and death, and I'm also seeking, seeking my satisfaction in what's subject to birth, and illness, and death. Is that going to ultimately lead to happiness? No. So he said, what if I sought my security in that which is beyond birth, beyond illness, beyond aging, and beyond death? And this is what he called nibbana. He discovered what he was looking for on the night of his enlightenment, the story I'm sure that you know well. And it's said that in the first lines that he spoke or that came to him after his enlightenment was this phrase, my mind has attained the unconditioned and reached the very end of craving. My mind has attained the unconditioned and reached the very end 
of craving. This is the release that he was looking for. This is the security that he was looking for. This unconditioned he also called nibbana, a word that literally means extinguishment or blowing out, the blowing out of the flame of craving and also of suffering. At one point, someone asked Sariputta, what is Nibbana? Can you describe it? And Sariputta defined it as the destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, and the destruction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. The Buddha said there are three marks of the unconditioned, or of Nibbana. There is no arising, there is no passing away, and there's no change. If there is something within our being, some dimension of our being, that is not subject to arising, is not subject to passing, and is not subject to change, then it must be present now. Because it is present in every moment, Enlightenment is possible at every moment. Enlightenment is the discovery of, through our direct experience, the nature of this dimension of our being. Some synonyms for this dimension, the truth, the other shore, the everlasting, peace, the deathless, safety, freedom, the refuge, the beyond. The entire path leads in the direction of the unconditioned. This is from the Buddha. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines toward the ocean, so too a practitioner who develops and cultivates a noble eightfold path slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. So how can we understand it within our experience? We've heard of Arahant's There are, um, according to my understanding, beings in the world today who reach this level of complete liberation, full enlightenment, as uh, the Buddha did. Such a person is said to abide in Nibbana, to be fully released, fully liberated. But since most of us aren't there yet, What can we make of Nibbana in our practice? Can it be something that um, becomes a part of our approach to life and to meditation? So I want to suggest two ways that the element of Nibbana can come alive uh, for us. One way is to understand that there can be a temporary, what you might say, foretaste of Nibbana in our ordinary day-to-day experience. And it is basically at those times when greed, aversion, and delusion go away. So starting to be alive to, um, awake for the possibility that when we check on our attitude, is there greed, is there aversion, is there delusion present, that none of those factors may be present. And that at that point, the mind free from greed, aversion, and delusion, at least as far as we can tell, at least first approximation, is a mind that's enjoying a little bit of the taste, the flavor of the release of Nibbana. Ajahn Buddhadasa wrote a really lovely little pamphlet, which I think you can find on the internet, called Nibbana for Everyone. Not just the property of Arahants, Nibbana for Everyone. He said, Nibbana is a natural condition. It is the cool state of mind without any kilesas or defilements, that is, without the qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is not the permanent Nibbana that the Buddha discovered. It's not the full Nibbana of someone who penetrates directly to the unconditioned and has a firsthand knowledge of it, but it is a little bit of a taste that can point our practice in that direction. In fact, Ajahn Buddhadasa went on to say, 
that we're having many moments of this coolness every day, that we are all experiencing many moments of this temporary nibbana, as he called it. And he said, if we didn't, we'd all be going crazy. Because who could stand to be burned by the defilements nonstop all the time? So this is one way that you can start to have the flavor of this in your practice. Look for those times perhaps the mind has been struggling with an agenda of desire or some resistance of aversion, some delusion of not seeing or not understanding. And as you stay with that experience, paying close attention, the the mind will come out of it. At some point, those kilesas will pass and feel the coolness of that release, of that transition, and know that that's a little bit of the flavor of everyday nibbana. So what else in our experience might be like nibbana? What has the the quality of being ever-present and yet accommodating uh, without disturbing all the arisings which are of the conditioned realm. On a physical level, space kind of has this property, doesn't it? Physical space can accommodate anything. It accommodates all of us. It accommodates all the furniture. Physical space accommodates the earth. And then, of course, when we turn to the big mind meditation, we tune into that inner space, which is pervaded by awareness. So we talk about the empty space of awareness. So we might say that this inner space of awareness also has some of the qualities of Nibbana, doesn't it? Whenever we look for it, it always seems to be there. Everything can come and go within it and it's not obscured. It's not stained. It's not harmed by that. Its nature is peaceful. Nibbana is often described in the text as the stilling of all formations. This empty space of awareness has that still quality, doesn't it? Because it's ever-present when we turn to it, I wonder if it has actually the quality of being the deathless. But when we think back to those three components that make us up, form, mental formations, and consciousness, the Buddha said all three of those are impermanent. All three are coming and going and so can't be a proper refuge. So if consciousness is impermanent, Is awareness any different? It seems stable, doesn't it? But could, could it be another flickering on and off, like the stability of the walls? So, is awareness permanent or impermanent? Deathless or conditioned? I don't know if this question interests you, but it interests some of us very much. And um, I think it was essentially the spur that led Joseph to write this really wonderful book um, that he wrote a few years ago called One Dharma. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, I highly recommend it. He talks about this from a number of different angles and talks about the response of different schools of Buddhism in answering this question. So I don't want to go into the other, all the different schools tonight because uh, that would take a long time. I want to give you my answer. So realize this is just one person's opinion. But this is what I'd like to talk about. I want to suggest that awareness actually is synonymous with consciousness. That it's not strictly deathless but that it serves as a very good approximation to the deathless. And that you can use it that way as a skillful means in your practice and put a lot of trust in it. 
it can be a wonderful refuge. Philosophically, when we investigate the actual nature and detail of it, I would say it is not actually deathless. But it sure looks like it. So it works really well. The other reason that it um, serves so well as an approximation for the deathless, again, just in my understanding, is that it has a direct link, a direct connection to the unconditioned. And that's what I want to draw out with this image. So I want to ask you to do a little experiment, a little thought experiment. Please humor me a little longer. Please imagine that you're on the edge of our solar system. Your back is toward the sun. Your spacesuit is taken care of. And you have a non-reflective visor. Your back is to the sun and you're looking out into a part of the sky. Let's just say for point of, of hypothesis that doesn't have any stars in it. Your back is to the sun. You're looking into the sky. There are no stars where you're looking. What do you see? Not a trick question. Do you see anything? No. It's just black, right? And it's not the color black, but it's just the total absence of light, right? So you're looking into this space, and there's the total absence of light. But your back is to the sun. Let's assume your shadow is negligible. Is there actually light? in that space in front of your eyes? By light, I mean packets of light energy, photons, electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, it's full of light, isn't it? Because the sun's light is just streaming out in all directions. So that space in front of you is actually pervaded by the light of the sun, but you don't see it. That light is always there. You could say it's ever-present, but you don't notice it. Now, let's say a meteorite flies through space in front of your eyes. Don't worry too much about the physics. Do you see the meteorite? Yeah. It's really clear, right? Because it's reflecting the sunlight that's already there back to your eyes. Okay, that's an impermanent arising. It only comes for a second and then it's gone. But it's possible because of this ever-present light that's permeating the space. The infinite space permeated by ever-present light. So I want to suggest that the infinite space permeated by ever-present light is the unconditioned in its aspect of emptiness, which is the space that's not full, and luminosity, that that is always there. When an object arises, that object is illuminated as a flashing into consciousness so that you could say the light and the object are revealed together, but that's impermanent. So that's an analogy for consciousness and the object coming up together, and the luminosity pervading the empty space is an analogy for the unconditioned. This is the way I understand our nature. Some schools don't agree with this view, Some schools do. So, as I understand awareness, it always comes with something being known. And without something being known, we wouldn't feel aware. Often it's the body, it's sounds, thoughts, emotions. A lot of times when you feel the spacious extent of awareness, I want to suggest that what's being known is physical space. You can reflect on that a bit. But all of those things can be known because the luminosity is intrinsic to the nature of of our experience, to this dimension of Nibbana. 
So I want to suggest that Nibbana is the combination of emptiness and luminosity. Unmoving, unchanging, and having the capacity to reveal the whole conditioned world. When we practice a practice like Big Mind and we kind of let our awareness unhook from the individual objects that we may have been fixated on, can you feel how that kind of shifts your center of gravity away from individual phenomena into this kind of mysterious presence of awareness? And as it unhooks from the individual phenomena, it kind of opens us up into this at least substitute union of emptiness and awareness. We aren't exactly seeing the unconditioned in our day-to-day experience. Usually that perception is, is, a, is a shift, an abrupt shift um, in experience. But we are sort of letting that unconditioned nature come through to us, come through to our intuition. And with it is a sense of peace. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon the foundations of wisdom and peace. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one, They are called a sage at peace. The sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and they are not agitated, for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. So this luminosity has an unborn quality. It has not come into the manifest world yet. But when an object arises within it, then its light is made manifest and we are in the conditioned manifest realm. And yet right within it, permeating it, is this unconditioned luminous nature. Ajahn Buddhadasa. This emptiness is self-existent. Nothing can touch it, concoct it, or improve it. This is the eternal state, for it knows neither birth nor death. Once the mind is rid of delusion, it discovers its primal state, the true original mind, which is satipanya, or mindfulness and wisdom. Some teachers have a way of manifesting this kind of um, understanding or this kind of attainment. And I want to close by telling you a story of uh, a meeting with one of these people. I was in Kathmandu practicing with uh, one of my Tibetan teachers. It was a few years ago. And there was a very esteemed senior lama visiting his monastery at that time. The lama's name was Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. I had some money that a friend asked me to offer to Rinpoche as dana because the friend was a student of Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. So I told my teacher I'd like to pass on some dana to Kempo. That was his name in short from this student in the States. And my teacher said, would you like to offer it to him personally? And I said, no, I don't need to. I thought, you, you can give it to him. I said, in the back of my mind was kind of, seen one llama, you've seen them all. <laughs> and then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I actually would like to meet him because I've heard so much about him. So a a meeting was arranged, and I was ushered into his room, and he was sitting up in a meditation posture. I was a little nervous because he's such a well-known and esteemed lama. He died a few years ago, unfortunately. So I made my bows. We had a a short conversation, and then my teacher encouraged me to offer the envelope with the donation to Kempo. So I did, and as I offered it to him, I looked up into his eyes, And just in that moment, he seemed to go into a deep meditative state as he looked directly at my eyes. His eyes moved slightly apart. And I felt such a stillness in his mind 
that it wouldn't even be right to say that his mind was still. There was no mind there to be either still or moving. And it was just like looking into this deep ocean of peace. And what I actually felt it was like was like looking directly into Nibbana. And I felt if I could have just kept looking there a little longer, (laughs) who knows what might have happened. (laughs) That was the nature of mind. Then the meeting ended and I left. But the image has always stayed with me. It showed me something that I think the Buddha had, a deep presence of tranquility and unmovability that perhaps was the reason that his talks, unlike our own, can enlighten so many people. (laughs) So let's just sit together for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.